Pace Line is produced by the Cycling Independent with the support of subscribers like you and additional underwriting from Shimano North America. We are community-focused, community-supported, and dedicated to the whole of cycling. Always remember, at the Cycling Independent, if you ride bikes, you're one of us. From the Cycling Independent, this is The Pace Line, the podcast on two wheels. I'm Patrick Brady, and with me is my co-host, John Robot Lewis. Each week, we take a look at how cycling fits in our lives. Hey, dude. Hey, how are you doing? You're back in Memphis. I am back in Memphis, and it's not like when I was in Memphis this winter or this spring. Is it full summer there now? You know, here's the thing the the gates of hell look at Memphis and go, man, someday, someday I'm going to be just like that. I'm going to I'm going to be like that when I grow up. Um, it's uh, this uh, this weekend will cool off to the uh, low 90s. Oof. Oof. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I, my mother is uh, not a spring chicken anymore for fairly obvious reasons. Um, and one of the things that happens with older people is they like for it to be kind of warm where they are. And she was in a part of her home that is uh, cooler than the part of her home where I was busy working yesterday. Yeah, I was sweating in here. <laughs> so, yeah, it's like that. <laughs> Well, it's going to be warm here tomorrow, but it'll be cooler than your. Our high will be cooler than your low, I think. Mm, mm, That sounds nice. That sounds really lovely. Uh, Yeah, it might be nice. I'm I'm also willing to bet that it's not as humid there. Uh, It's there's a little mugginess creeping in, but we have mostly avoided the the swamp the fever swamp feeling uh, so far as of uh, June, middle June here. If you were to take, say, one cubic foot of air from here and just suddenly deposit it in Antarctica, I think the air itself would freeze. There's just (laughs) so much moisture content. Yeah, yeah, that is my very least favorite. And that's why when I left the South, I never went back. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not built for that. (laughs) Me either. Me either. I I mean, Memphis has changed a lot. And, you know, to the point that I found good reason to write about Memphis for Bicycling Magazine, which back in 2010 called Memphis the worst city in the nation for cycling. Right. They're not the best, but they've improved a lot. They've improved in ways that I didn't think was possible. Uh, Right. Even so, my standard joke about Memphis is that I didn't have a reason to leave. I had four or five. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we shouldn't beat up on Memphis while you're still there. Um, No. Well, you know, here's the test. People say, here's how you tell if you're a Memphian. If you defend Memphis. Mm. For any reason. Under any circumstance, if you're willing to go to Memphis's defense, 
you, sir, are a Memphian. And so I get to say these things because I'm a Memphian. I will at the same time, you know, even as I'm bashing this town, I will also defend it because you are not going to get better barbecue than you are here. Well, that's funny. You know, I haven't been back to Mobile, Alabama, where I grew up in at least 20 years, I think. But people ask me, you know, would you go there? You know, like, is it worth visiting? And I say to them, the food's great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I try to just leave it there. But anyway, (laughs) um, (laughs) moving right uh, along. Yeah, moving right along. Um, should we get to it? Yeah. So, uh, I have sensed a disturbance in the force this week, uh, and I'm not sure what to do or think about it, and I'm hoping maybe you can help me with it. I'm probably the wrong guy to enlist, but please continue. You're the only guy on this podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> so here it goes. Okay. It, it appears that the supply and demand paradigm in the bike industry has shifted quite abruptly, or it seems that way to me because I'm not in a shop every single day. I don't run a shop. I'm not looking at the books. Right. But um, what that looks like from my perspective is consumer demand dropping off, uh, maybe related to a return to work maybe due to the industry, i.e. the supply, finally catching up, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe due to inflation, Uh, maybe due to market saturation. Uh, Hard to say. I can't I can't really tell. Mm -hmm. At the same at the same time, shops have been stockpiling inventory and running cash poor because demand has been high and supply has been short. Right. So. This is that's usually true at the beginning of a season, which we're I mean, we're fully into the season now, but it it seems extra true. The inventory rich cash poor part, it seems extra true right now. And that cash thin inventory rich situation is stagnating their businesses Mm -hmm. uh, because, as I said, demand is sort of abated. Yeah. I heard from two different shop owners in the last couple of weeks saying that they think they're done. And curiously, in both cases, both of these people are good operators. They're smart people. They've made good money with their shops, but they feel the pandemic did two serious pieces of damage to their businesses. Really? Yeah. First, vendors shifted their attention to direct consumer efforts. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Essentially, industry suppliers took advantage of the demand spike during the pandemic to shift their focus to higher margin channels, right? Like the, the, the manufacturer makes more money selling direct to the consumer than they do to the shop, right? Because right. basically they have to cut the shop in. And with demand so high, I think uh, a lot of suppliers were saying, well, let's just ramp up our direct to consumer work. Um, as a result, shops are getting less good service and fewer choices about what bikes they get. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The second thing is consumers grokked this shift and the more widespread move to having things delivered to their houses that came from being in quasi lockdown. Mm -hmm. And so the small purchases they would have stopped by the shop for are now being delivered by big online distributors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, they're missing tubes, they're missing gloves, they're missing water bottles, they're missing all of this little incremental income that they would have had is just 
sort of gone. Mm -hmm. Basically, the pandemic exacerbated a challenge that was already confronting shop owners, but demand was high enough initially that they could sort of pretend it wasn't happening. Mm -hmm. Now, as the gears grind a bit more slowly, these, these sorts of things are spelling trouble. A drop in demand is always hard to navigate, but for it to happen at this particular point in time, when cash is hard to find means that a lot of bike shops, I think, are not going to survive this season. Oof. That'll be true of less well-run shops, right? Mm -hmm. And that's mm -hmm. always true. Like, badly run restaurants, badly run, badly run businesses don't survive. And that's... And when, when the economy becomes challenging to navigate, those weak businesses get weeded out. That's normal. Yep. But what really concerns me is that there are a lot of really good shops who are looking at the landscape and thinking they might be done trying to push the rock up the hill. For, you know, push it up the hill for a group of supp suppliers who aren't true partners anymore and customers who don't appreciate them enough to devote their dollars locally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think the smart ones are saying, um, you know, we're OK, but. You know, this isn't the game we want to play anymore. It doesn't it's not making a ton of sense. Does this does this jibe with the things you're seeing in your hometown uh, or in your travels for that matter? Yeah, well, um, so a couple months back, uh, word began circulating through Santa Rosa that NorCal Bike Sport, a specialized concept store uh, and the bike peddler, uh, which was, you know, seemed more like a traditional mom and pop shop, but still enjoyed the same ownership. Plus the trail house, uh, which is the uh, tap room slash bike shop uh, that the owners of NorCal Bike Sport also owned. It came out that they were selling to specialized. Um, mm. And I wasn't remotely surprised by that because Specialized got awfully bent out of shape when Mike's bikes sold to Pawn, uh, the owner of Cervelo and Santa Cruz and a billion other brands. Um, so I knew that there was no way that Specialized was going to let NorCal Bike Sport and the rest of that operation slip away. I just didn't think that they were going to buy the operation in 2022. I yeah. thought it would be, you know, 2025, 2026. Uh, Glenn, the uh, the primary, you know, like the most visible partner of the owners, he he's a young guy. He hasn't had his 50th birthday, I, you know, but um, in the pandemic, uh, things got weird with uh, the school that his kids were in and uh, his wife was working remotely. They moved to South Lake Tahoe. Bye bye. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, it's such a strange thing, but I guess, you know, when you think about how markets move cyclically, you know, usually after there's been a big boom of some sort, there's some sort of crash. You get a spike, things come back down after the, after the spike, there was a big spike in demand and sales in 2020 and 2021. Um, and I mean, there's another piece of this, Aside from just the fact that the market, you know, was destined to return to some, you know, lower uh, overall number uh, and, you know, revenue and sales. There was a point in time where 
bike companies were placing these insane orders with their suppliers, both uh, both the factories that were producing their frames and forks and uh, their suppliers like Shimano. In order to stay in queue, you were having to place uh, place orders. In order to have a decent place in the queue, you're having to place gigantic orders. And uh, it was a, it, you know, it was kind of a jungle mentality where the biggest order got the first spot in the queue. Um, and so there are a whole lot of bike companies out there that have a lot more bikes, you know, coming across the ocean now than, than they might ordinarily. Um, and so the bike companies are going to be in a rather difficult position here pretty soon. Um, I just, you know, if all these people are selling out to, uh, companies like Specialized and Pawn and Trek, um, by the way, Mike's Bikes, the big operation. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Yeah. yeah. They bought four shops in Denver, right? The right. Elevation Bike yeah, yeah. shops. Yeah. Yeah. Front range shops, you know, uh, and, and a, a well-respected chain. Um, so, <laughs> um, this this homogenization um it scares me it really scares me what it looks like to me is channel control um mm -hmm. you know the 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 big bike companies were using small retailers to warehouse their products basically forcing big pre-season orders shipping mm -hmm. these things because they didn't have central warehousing they didn't want to pay to store all this stuff they needed commitments. Um, and so that worked for a little while. And then the shops that were overcommitted to, uh, you know, giant orders ended up handing their keys over because they were too deep in debt. It was sort of the company, the company shop, the company store scenario. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then I think the big bike companies just decided, well, let's control the channels. Let's control direct to consumer, but let's also control retail. And I think they really believe they can run retail better than the people who the local folks who tried to run retail. Um, yeah. And, and once that thing started, what, you know, like what we can say, uh, th this started with pawn buying Mike's bikes, but actually I think it, it was already pretty well underway. Uh, now the big companies, you know, giant is a little bit of a, either they're an exception or they're way behind the curve, but, um, mm -hmm. uh, pawn, uh, that controls, uh, Cannondale, Santa Cruz, Cervelo, um, and specialized in Trek are all now battling in the big markets to own the retail channel. Yeah. Yeah. And if I, one buys these guys, then the other buys those guys and you know, they're trying not to get shut out of markets and I, I don't know where it all goes. And I don't, my biggest concern, well, I've, I have two concerns. One is that, you know, the kooky, cool people that have been pillars of the bike industry uh, for better and for worse are being <laughs> squeezed out yeah. and your, your, your bicycle retail experience is really going to become a homogenized service center sort of experience. And that's just a bummer. Yeah. Years ago when I lived in Northampton, 
um, there's this record store right downtown, Main Street Records. I mean, come on, that, is that an apple my apple pie name or what? Right. Um, but it was one of those classic, ultra quirky record stores. You know, you could walk in and they might be playing the plasmatics. Uh, it was you just never really knew what you were going to find in there. And I adored that shop for that. And, you know, what we're watching is that a place like Main Street Records is going to become Sam Goody's. And the thing is, what happened to Sam Goody's and, you know, all those other really fallow chains that, you know, only carried the top 50 things that were being played on the radio? Um, they all got mopped up by Napster, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so, I mean, one of the things that we know about, uh, markets is that when it gets too homogenized, some intervening force comes in to shake things up. And, uh, you know, in the case of the record industry, it was a piece of software that screwed up everyone's income. It just, it, it, it forever destroyed uh, music as a as a reasonable way to make a living. Um, I mean, I, I can't even begin to go into the the economics of what I know about what happened to the uh, to the record industry. But it's it's been dismal. Um, yeah. And, you know, so I look at the bike industry and it's like, so we've got a couple of companies trying to homogenize the whole thing. And shut out a lot of really interesting brands like, you know, Cervelo, Santa Cruz, Evil, uh, Ibis. You know, we could go on with these brands for all, all day because there are only going to be a few brands left after all this shakes out. And when you get that homogenization, something, it, you know, some intervening force is going to rise. Um, there's going to be something that comes in from somewhere and shakes everything up. And I, what I'm really afraid of is that. Um, well, yeah, I think, you know, for me, there's two things going on. Um, there's this, you know, we're a couple of middle-aged, uh, guys and, uh, there's a sense of like, well, you know, fear of the future. I don't like the way I don't like this change. You know, there there I get that that's how a lot of this sounds. Yeah, get off yeah. my lawn. But Steve and I did a, a an episode of Revolting about actually I forget what the episode is called now, uh but but we did a whole episode about, you know what, actually things used to be better. Actually yes. things yes. used to be better. And 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 it was really uh, about how the experience of our community used to be a lot richer. It used to be a lot more weird, random, diverse, interesting. Um, it was really local, you know, mm-hmm. and, and a great example for me as a Bostonian is Harvard Square. When I first came to Boston, uh, late 80s, early 90s, Harvard Square was full of like weird little bookstores. You know, you could buy legit anarchist literature at the anarchist bookstore Yep. And there was a, a feminist bookstore and there were, you know, various record stores the Grolier, and a whole bookstore devoted just to poetry. Right. They have survived. Uh, but <laughs> wow, they're an, they're an outlier. And the restaurants were weird and different. Mm-hmm. And now if you go to Harvard Square, it's an outdoor mall. 
It's, right. you know, a giant Starbucks and a Shake Shack. And Benetton. yeah, it's just it's a garbage experience. You go there like, why? What is what makes me feel like I'm in Harvard Square? Yes, Harvard University is right there. But other than that, this could be downtown Baltimore or uh, yeah. Yeah. it could be anywhere. It is a some real estate developer out there was going, we're going to make it better. Yeah, we're, we can get higher rents from the big chains. That's exactly what happened. We can get higher rents from the big chains and the big chains want in because this is a prime location. And what they've done is just Disneyfy. I mean, it's the same thing New Yorkers complain about with Times Square. They wanted yeah. Times Square to be less seedy and crappy, but actually now it's like a Disney village. Yes. No one goes there because what's the point? Right. Um, and and that's, I think, you know, to bring it back to bike shops, that is not what I want my bike shop experience to be. I want to go to my bike shop, like my local shop. Uh, and I've I've talked about them before. Battle Road Bikes. You know, they've got some weird BMX bikes and they have BMX cruisers and they've got e-bike. Like they have this variety of stuff that doesn't isn't really coherent in some ways, but is beautiful and interesting. And like I would look at those bikes all day, whereas if I go into a company store, there's really nothing interesting. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, years and years ago, uh, the bike shop that I worked in out in Raleigh, one of the suburbs of Memphis here. Uh, we sold a whole lot of BMX. We sold um, mountain bikes in a certain price range, and we sold road bikes in a certain price range. It was a quirky collection of of things to sell, but we knew our market. You know, we we knew yeah. what people were coming in for. Um, and I'd say three out of four road bikes that we sold were being sold for commuting. So I mean, there's that too. Right. Uh, yeah. But, you know, we were great at taking care of parents coming in for first bike for their kid, you know, and that's that sort of thing, like understanding your neighborhood. Um, that's going to go away. Um, yeah. And then, of course, you know, all the profits on the sales of all those bicycles will not stay in whatever community that is. Yeah, they're leaving the community. They're leaving yeah. town. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think for a long time, a lot of people really haven't understood what that does, the, all the downstream effects economically. Um, but, you know, I, one word, uh, well, two words, Greenfield, Massachusetts, <laughs> Walmart killed the whole town inside of two years. Mm. Um, that place is a ghost town now. Um, and it used to be a funky, weird little town. Um, now it's just a funky, weird dead town. I, I, you know, I, I, I can rant and rave about these things and I don't want to go on and well, I do want to go on and on, but no one else wants that. But it's to me, it's like, there's the, the brute economics of it. Like, where do you want, do you want your money to stay in your community or do you want it to leave? But actually for me, it's really about just my experience of living in the place that I live. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, I want to go into my town center and have interesting places to businesses to frequent. Yeah. One of the reasons I moved to Santa Rosa was I wanted to feel like I lived in a place, you know, yeah. not some sort of bedroom community. Uh, I yeah. wanted to leave live in a a real town. And, you know, Santa Rosa has its issues, um, but it is it's an actual place. Um, and I 
I really cherish that. Um, you know, if we're going to try to end this on a somewhat upbeat note, um, we might point out to everyone that, you know, yeah, so we're now finally reaching that point post pandemic or mid pen. I don't know what are we are. We pre post pandemic. Yeah. Neo neo late, post late mid. Um, yeah. We're finally getting to that point where, yeah, uh, suppliers are getting caught up and now bike shops are getting caught up. And um, for anyone who's been contemplating a bike purchase, um, I suggest checking back in about November, early November. Um, and if not, then certainly mid January. Um, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of discounted bikes. Uh. Yeah, I think we will be. I think that's correct. Yeah. So uh, start saving. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to take a break and we will be back in just a minute. This podcast is brought to you by Shimano. I remember getting my first real road bike uh, in the middle 90s and the guy selling it to me uh, his main pitch was that of all the bikes in my price range, this was the only one that had Shimano Ultegra components on it. And it was, I guess I wasn't really, I wasn't a, a heavy, I was a bike nerd, but I wasn't a gear guy at that point. And so I was kind of, this was my first introduction to the idea that Ultegra was somehow this gold standard in road components. And I kind of, you know, I'm a cynical guy. I'm a skeptical guy. And I, I sort of dismissed that out of hand. And then I rode the other bikes and I was like, oh no, I get exactly what that means. And it, it, it's never stopped meaning that I've had so many Ultegra bikes, uh, since then. And it's, it really means something over a period of 25 years or, or whatever. Uh, it's more now, it's more like 30 to have made something that is the gold standard. Um, and so that's part of the reason we're proud to have them as a sponsor for the podcast. Okay, we're back with the pace line, the podcast on two wheels. What's your pull this week? Well, uh, wonder of wonders. I've got another question this week. Uh, oh. Yeah. Uh, and of course, this is another question that wasn't directed specifically at the pace line, but just me. Um, I heard from an old friend in SoCal, David, the guy I used to do group rides with. Um, and he was a teammate for a fair number of years. And I would guess that I've ridden more than 20,000 miles with this guy. Oh, you're <laughs> common law married, I think, but go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he messaged me to ask about disc brakes. Now, okay, I need to explain. He's a roadie. Uh, and by that, I mean, he rides road bikes and that's what he does as a cyclist. Um, and he said that while he understood that disc brakes were, you know, an established thing for mountain bikes and gravel bikes because you can't get a rim caliper around a tire much bigger than 33 millimeters wide, uh, he wasn't convinced that he needs them for a road bike and he wanted my perspective. I have to begin my response by explaining that there's a lot more to disc brakes than tire width. Um, and we can dispense with that particular detail because it doesn't really apply to road bike tires. Um, I'll admit that I haven't taken the time to talk to any product managers uh, prior to formulating my answer. 
So I'm going to say that there might be a couple people out there who would shift these priorities just a little bit from what I have, uh, what I'm going to say. Okay, to me, the first reason to consider disc brakes for a road bike is consistent braking every single time, no matter what the weather. I've been in rainy situations where I've hit the brakes on a road bike with rim calipers, and I swear it seemed like the bike accelerated instead of slowing. And I had that. I guess it's just it's you know, you have that expectation that the bike's going to slow. And when it doesn't slow at all, it actually feels like, oh, I must be going even faster now. Um, disc brakes, man, they stop no matter what the weather is, wet, dry, snowy, muddy, you know, um, whatever it is, they're going to stop. And I really do love that. Uh, and to me, that is, if you need one reason, that's your reason. Uh, but if you need more reasons, second reason is braking power and modulation. I often hear people talk about how they could stop just fine on their road bike. And I may have said this eight years ago myself. Um, so why would anyone need a more powerful brake? Uh, the answer is that improved braking power with less force at the lever does change how we brake. Uh, and that's, this is one of those things that I just, I had to experience it to find out. Um, I know that when I've been at speed, I'm talking north of 30 miles per hour, I've been reluctant to pull too hard on a brake lever. I'll pull pretty hard, but I won't pull real hard. Um, I'm not entirely sure why, but it may have something to do with my expectations of winding up on the ground and, uh, <laughs> you know, using myself as a mop. Uh, mm -hmm. With disc brakes, I don't have to pull as hard. And because the modulation ramps up more quickly than with rim calipers, I can go from slightly scrubbing speed to near panic stop without turning my knuckles white. Um, reason number three, you know, as more and more riders switch from rim calipers to discs, riding within a group as one of few riders with the old brake, well, if there's any sort of panicked situations where people hit the brakes hard, the riders on the bikes with disc brakes will enjoy a shorter stopping distance. And those with rim calipers, well, um, there's the possibility that they may run into the back of other riders that way. Um, I could see that really being a problem. I've only experienced it the other way of being the only person on a group ride with disc brakes and just tapping the brakes and having people behind me go, Whoa. <laughs> um, I have heard that. I've also been yelled at for it. It's like, ah, sorry. Um, I did learn how to touch the brakes even more lightly with time. There's another point to consider, uh, and that is while it's possible to lock up rim brakes on a road bike running 23 millimeter tires pumped up to 116 PSI, eight bar to you metrics out there, uh, and skid from here to Topeka with people running wider tires pumped up to lower pressure, road bikes now enjoy a good deal more traction and disc brakes are the best way to capitalize on that traction when braking. Um, having said all that, um, I know people are going to be going, well, but there's this thing against them and then there's this knock. So I'll just, I'll go ahead and own them. Uh, I'll point out that the first disc brake levers were big and chunky and uncomfortable. They had the ergonomics of a 1950s lawnmower. 
Uh, that's not the case anymore. The ergonomics are much better. The levers aren't nearly so big. Uh, also, I'm aware that disc brake pads are more expensive than brake pads for rim calipers, and they don't last as long. Uh, and that you have to be careful with cl when cleaning the bike so that the pads don't squeal afterward. Um, and, well, there's also the fact that the brakes have to be bled periodically, increasing the amount of maintenance required. Um, yeah, mm -hmm. all those things are dings for sure. But they aren't enough to make me conclude they aren't worth it. That's the thing. Uh, I can admit that there are those knocks and still go, yeah, I, I love disc brakes. Uh, and having said all of that, on top of that, I do still own two road bikes with rim calipers, and I won't be getting rid of them anytime in this life. <laughs> I have been basically holding my breath the whole time you were talking because I just want to explode with opinions. <laughs> well, this is the audience participation portion of the show. I, you know, I should say that maybe there's a reason that he came to you directly and didn't aim it at both of us because he was like, I don't really want to hear what robots are going to say about this. <laughs> I want something that I can actually base the decision on. Maybe, maybe. I mean, I have, I have very few bikes for a bike lunatic. I have, I have a lot uh, fewer than I used to. But. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> Moving right along. I had 12 bikes at one point, and I have five now. But I bet you sold yours. I did. <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along, yes. Um, I, have a, my, I have a single road bike, and it has rim brakes, and I run 25s on it. And I love that bike and I will never replace it. If I'm doing a devoted road ride, that is the bike that I will ride. I mean, as long as I can imagine. Mm -hmm. um, it is lighter than a bike with disc brakes, uh, if that's important to you. Uh, it's just a perfectly balanced, well-tuned machine that I control very well. If... I were going to ride uh, with a group uh, in foul weather. I would probably just take my gravel bike, uh, which is disc brake equipped. Mm -hmm. um, so what I would say to David is there's nothing wrong with your road bike, but you should get a gravel bike. <laughs> <laughs> a gravel there's bike, a lot of that. Yep. Yeah. As it turns out, um, a gravel bike is both a road bike and a mountain bike. It, it's both of them uh, at the same time. And so all the stuff you said is true about uh, disc brakes. They are uh, experientially better in virtually every way. They are a pain in the ass to maintain. Uh, if you don't have the facility to bleed your own brakes, then you, that's another couple trips to the shop. Uh, and it costs you money. There, I... I as I go along with disc brake bikes, which I love and that's what I'm buying, I do, um, I, it does remind me a bit of the, the point in automotive history when cars stopped being mechanical and started being, uh, 
computer-operated yeah. machines. Yeah. Um, you know, the time when you would work on your own car disappeared. Uh, and that made life uh, complicated and annoying and more expensive. Um, mm-hmm. Were the cars better? Yeah, they were better cars. Uh, but, you know, we did lose something at the same time. And so that's sort of where I'm at with the disc brake, uh, rim brake thing. Mm-hmm. The, the only other thing I would add to that is there are a kabillion rim brake bikes out there. And I, there's something about um, evolutionary, the end of an evolutionary uh, strand uh, mm-hmm. that makes me very sad because I imagine a lot of really nice bikes gathering dust. And I, I object to that in my soul. You know, I'm actually reasonably hopeful about that. Um, I remember some years ago, I don't know, it was the mid 2000s, 2005, 2006, somewhere in there. And I was here in Memphis and I showed up for a group ride at Odark 30 one morning. And there was a guy hanging there, you know, in the 14 or 16 people waiting for us to roll out who was on a bike with eight speed Altegra. Um, yeah. I mean, by that time, Altegra had gone to nine speeds and then to 10. It was 10 speeds at that point in time. And he was on eight. Um, there are people in the world who are going to see those 11 speed rim brake bikes and go, I'm ready to upgrade. <laughs> I mean, I know people um, and if they're listening, they'll know exactly who I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> who live their entire lives on campy 10 speed. Um, well, that was the last great campy group. I'm just going <laughs> to, I, I am one for blasphemy. Um, <laughs> but the last time I actually loved campy was that final iteration of 10 speed record. So yeah. I, these guys that you're talking to uh, or people, uh, I, they're all right. Yeah. Yeah, they're just one of the the offshoot sects of the of the bike cult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, you were going to say something to them. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, stay you. Don't move. Don't change a thing. <laughs> that's it. Don't just be boys. just yeah, just be you. And that's what I would say to your your buddy in Southern California. It's never going to rain there. Don't worry about it. Just roll <laughs> just roll your bike as long as you can, man. You know, there is one funny reality to being a cyclist in Southern California. Because it rains so rarely, when it does finally rain, you need like 3 days worth of rain to wash all the oil off the road so that it uh. is safe again to ride a road bike. I once mm. ignored people right after moving to Redondo Beach and went out for a ride as it was raining for the first time in like eight months. And yeah. um, I it was my first two wheel drift that I ever stayed upright for. <laughs> um, the pucker factor on that on a scale of one to ten was about thirty six. That sounds like a feature, not a bug to me. <laughs> <laughs> Great it's way a, to work on your skills. Uh, yeah, it's I a two wheel drift home. ride. Yeah. yeah, I I turned around and headed home. Don't you just you shouldn't require your ride to be so linear. That's your problem. <laughs> I figured I'd gotten the win for the day, even though I was only like eight minutes in. 
Uh, yeah. I figured, okay, we, we've won this one. We can now go home with success. Yes. I, I got to say, um, and then we can move on, but I got to say, I really love all of those little moments. Uh, it doesn't matter what kind of bike you're on where like you lose, you lose traction quite unexpectedly, but then you get it back also yes. quite unexpectedly and the bike stays upright and, and you roll, you're rolling out of it and you're like, Oh my God, I don't know what just happened, but it was magic. I love that. Yeah. The, the dopamine surge following that is, uh, you know, if you could dial that up on command, I think people would. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a drug worth taking. Yes. <laughs> and with that, we're going to move on to the paceline picks. That sounds great. Um, all right. Uh, so I have a real problem with cycling shorts, uh, which is not to say bibs or chamois equipped shorts, but what some people might refer to as baggies. Uh, they don't, they don't really work for me. Uh, Mm. first, yeah, first they're baggy. And, (laughs) and so you get the legs caught on your saddle all the time, or at least I do. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's just a variable I don't need to think about. Second, as I've mentioned on previous shows, they don't look good on me. And, uh, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I struggled with some level of vanity, which if you follow me on Instagram or any other visual medium, you'll be like, I I, I don't see it, John. I don't see what, I don't see this vanity (laughs) reflected in, (laughs) in your fashion choices. Um, a pair of shorts I really do like though is the Chrome Folsom 2.0. Uh, hmm. They are not baggy, but there's plenty of room to move in them. Uh, they stretch. The fabric is DWR coated. Um, for me, the fit and finish is kind of perfect. And and I can get a few uh, wears out of them before they need to be laundered, which is, uh, uh, if you've listened to my picks before, is always a feature. <laughs> Um, at $125 retail, they're pretty pricey, but as with most I'm of the stuff, I'm going to contest that idea that they're pricey. Yeah. Well, you can spend more for sure, but you know, here on planet earth, not everyone has a buck and a quarter to drop on a pair of shorts. So I'm trying to, I'm just trying to be, you know, trying well, to you keep can spend it real. less, but, but the quality won't be there is, is my experience. Well, yeah, most, as with most of the stuff I recommend, I've had the same pair. I've ha- I have a few pairs actually, and I've had them for years, like maybe 10 years. Hmm. Um, maybe they even had a different name when I bought them, but it's the same short. Um, and the ones I have are not worn or tired looking. They're amazing. It's a classic case of invest money in a good thing and keep it a long, long time. Um, they have an 11 inch inseam and come in three colors, uh, black, gray, and olive. That's not the names they give their colors. They give them something much more fun, but it's black, gray, and olive. Um, uh, Chrome <laughs> also makes a mid version of this short with a nine inch, nine inch inseam, which if you have short, short legs, uh, if you're bow legged like me, that can be a good choice. Um, so that's a thing to think about. Hmm. Yeah, I'm. I'm with you. I don't like baggy shorts precisely for the reason that they are called what they are. Um, yeah. I want something that is form fitting. Uh, I also want something that will allow the sweat to evaporate out of my bib shorts that I'm wearing. Yeah. 
And so if I put on a pair of baggies, I just end up soaking wet. <laughs> I really don't enjoy that. So I have yet to get up. I'll, I'll like my weekend rides. I'll show up. I'll be the one guy not in baggies. Yeah. But I've ceased to notice. So now, my, do, my you ride road, do you ride mountain bikes in a road kit? Yeah. Look at you. Look at oh, you. Yeah. That is bold. with the hydration pack. Yeah, I'm. I am like a one-man rolling fashion no. <laughs> I love it a lot. I love it a lot. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I'm out there with a, you know, a stretchy road jersey with pockets on, a hydration pack on my back, bib shorts, no baggies, uh, and everybody else is in baggies and loose-fitting jerseys that, you know, conceal things that I'm not concealing. Yes. Um, I do like the yeah. loose fitting jersey. I will tell you that airflow is is nice. I I mean, yeah. Don't listen to me. I guess is, is no my no. I, I I love it. I love what you're doing. I love. Uh, I I like the idea of you uh, wearing like a baggy jersey and uh, bibs. I like. I know. I like all the weird combinations. Like you're just my you hero. If you. <laughs> If you pull up to the ride and people are like, what is going on with this guy? Then you're my hero. I think you're the best. I, I would say this is a point where we should encourage audience participation. Send us images <laughs> of yourself showing up as the fashion. No. Yeah. The fashion. No, that's right. If we can get, if we, I, I'll just put this out there. If, if send them to robot at cycling If I get a minimum of five quality fashion no images. I will make a post uh, to share your glory with the world. There we go. Alrighty. So my pick this week goes to my poll. It's SRAM's Red ETAP Axis Group, which is a mouthful in a way that nothing should be. I may right. say that's really going to be my only knock against this group. <laughs> Uh, for anyone shopping for a bike currently and looking for something easy to use, flawless in operation, and designed for today's rider, this group is one that's easily worth paying for. My favorite detail of SRAM's ETAP groups is the shifting itself. It's just so intuitive. Right lever is upshift, left shiver, uh, uh, left shiver, <laughs> left toy boat <laughs> left lever is downshift and then you hit both levers and that causes the chain to move chain rings that is okay my second issue my one other issue is that it's not possible to do a dead shift on the front derailleur to check which chain ring the chain is on touch the two levers and the chain's gonna move um i've experienced that sometimes with hilarious results, sometimes less so. Yep. Uh, I also do really love the response of SRAM's disc brakes. Modulation is super progressive. And for someone who likes to brake late before turns, this is the brake for you. Um, last, SRAM does seem to have a great BB solution, no matter what sort of BB design a frame has. Um, I, have, I have yet to encounter... Uh, any sort of frame set without being able to find a, an easy solution among the SRAM parts that I have sitting in my garage. Um, yeah. Um, 
All right. Well, there will be a link to that in our show notes. Uh, that's a wrap on another episode of The Pace Line. Uh, you got anything fun this weekend? Uh, I, uh, I hope that I'll be doing some mountain biking. That's as much as I'm going to say. I tweaked my back earlier in the week and spent some time oh, no. laying on an ice pack. Uh, but I was, I am not crippled and I am moving forward and I'm just going to ride my bike, uh, gently this weekend and try to enjoy it. You, uh, I'm going to try to consume all the scratch labs I can as I ride my butt off on Saturday and Sunday. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right. Before we go, uh, I'd like to put in a plug for TCI's other podcast, Revolting, which is a cycling podcast that isn't really about cycling with John and Steve Knievel of All Hail the Black Market and Enter the Deuce, which is even less about cycling and more about the miracle that is modern medicine. We hope you like them. And if you do, please subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. And if we aren't listed in a place you do like to get your podcasts, let us know where you'd like us to appear. Um, we can we can do that. Send us more questions. This is fun. Uh, if you've got an idea, please drop by the Cycling Independent and put a suggestion in the comments. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And if you have, please leave us a good review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It makes us easier for other listeners to find. Until next week, I'm Patrick Brady with Robot Lewis. Thanks for listening to The Pace Line.